0: this episode of the new statesman podcast we discuss what dominic cummings departure from downing street means for boris johnson's leadership and you ask us could labor win the next election So, between our last recording of the latest New Statesman podcast and today, Dominic Cummings has left Downing Street, which sort of lifted a lid on some of the chaos within the Prime Minister's operation. We discussed what the departure of Lee Kane one of Cummings' allies in Downing Street meant that we haven't talked about the sort of Cummings shaped hole itself. What first struck you about the news, Stephen? Because you actually said when we spoke on the most recent podcast that you thought that he wouldn't be staying very much longer, didn't you?
1: Yeah, it was, it was a slightly weird moment because podcast listeners who kindly subscribe to the New Statesman and there's a great Christmas deal that you should take advantage of if you don't, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, will have heard on the Thursday when I was going, well, look, These two political styles, I really do mean the word styles crucially here, Mm. because I think although there are important policy disagreements underpinning Downing Street's internal battle, the thing that I think made the Johnson-Cummings relationship inherently unstable is just that Boris Johnson doesn't like picking fights with people. Even in the 2019 campaign, when he was obviously fighting quite a divisive message, it's not like he was particularly going around to like Remain areas being like, and this place, this place is the problem and we need to send a message to these people. There's no particular reason why your campaign to win seats in the Red Wall necessarily has to be in seats in the Red Wall, right? Although Theresa May campaign for other reasons didn't didn't work very well for her they did make huge amounts of gains in those areas with a more sort of negative these people in cities are bad messages whereas boris johnson is at his happiest going somewhere and being like this town's great we're going to make it even better which does not at all fit him to the Dom cummings style of of doing politics so i guess it was one of those things when it happened i was just like okay that's something I kind of thought would have happened in like January, February, but I guess it's happening now instead. So I just, you know, I basically have thought for a long time and, you know, I've written several times and I I always thought then. The Cummings approach of like just being unnecessarily rude and belligerent to people who you think you don't need to be nice to was just always going to be a problem. Yeah, in many ways, like the irony is so Boris Johnson's sort of big relaunch kind of blitz has been slightly stymied by the fact he's having to be in self-isolation. There's an irony that if you'd had to go into self-isolation two weeks ago, then Don Cummings would probably still be there. Because one of the central problems is is Boris Johnson doesn't like the fact that like the parliamentary party has balkanized into like 400 different research groups, sacked ministers are like wandering around the place, like a badly licked bear, you know, kind of going, Oh, I'm going to vote against this. I'm going to vote against that. And so he's been having kind of meetings where he basically says to people like, Oh, you know, you and I, we, we built a bridge together. You know, what's, what's gone wrong? Why are we falling out? And they're just like, this man, Dominic Cummings, is just rude and unpleasant to me. He goes on about how he doesn't know who I am and how I'm stupid, and Downing Street doesn't talk to any of us, and your office is, is dysfunctional. You need to sort it out. He's like, oh okay. oh, okay. And essentially, what has happened is that, that was going to result in a chief of staff coming in and kind of bringing in order and kind of going, well, look, you can't behave like that, or, well, what's going on with that thing that you said you were going to reform? and that has inevitably led to a falling out. To me the interesting question is it has as a sort of london watchers will know has a, an almost exact echo with the city hall era when basically boris johnson for the first year had like a bunch of shock jocks in charge and they didn't do a very good job of running things. And he basically kind of went, this isn't, I think actually about the 11th month point as well, basically just went, do you know, I'm just tired of the fact that like the coverage is bad, we haven't achieved anything. And like people are going on about how I'm a bit rubbish. And there was a bit of a purge, he brought in a bunch of people who could, you know, do the job. Now, I'm not going to say I think that there was a particularly strong record of success in the Boris Johnson mayoralty other than on cycling infrastructure. But it was a politically more effective mechanism and it did get a decent dish amount done from a kind of centre-right urbanism perspective. Now, the question is, is is this essentially the Boris Johnson reboot where the fact that he, you know, is never going to be someone who, who wants to, like, manage... I can't believe I'm literally to, like, have it. We have a situation where I'm going, like, the Prime Minister is never actually going to want to do many of the core functions of being Prime Minister. But, like, my kind of big question is: is, and this is always been the question of a Boris Johnson premiership is can you make Downing Street a historically underpowered centre of government compared to most of its equivalents in the Western world Yeah, in terms of like the actual size of its bureaucracy I don't mean in terms of the constitutional powers of the Prime Minister can you govern in the City Hall way when the Mayor of London has a vast bureaucracy where the whole yeah the weird thing about City Hall right is it's like A system built for Ken Livingstone, which Ken Livingstone only got after like New Labour went, but we don't actually want Ken Livingstone to to run this thing. It really only makes sense as a structure for Ken Livingstone, but it's built to have a very powerful chief executive with a very large bureaucracy supporting them, which is actually in many ways ideal for Boris Johnson as well. Downing Street is very much not like that, so I still think the big question is: is although I think we're going to get the exact same reboot, slightly more conciliatory style, we actually say. A significantly higher number of actual administrators in the building. Can you have the Boris Johnson approach to governing in Downing Street rather than in City Hall? I've shrugged, which is stupid because shrugging isn't. This is an audio me- medium, but you know, I've shrugged. <laughs>
0: okay. So, Al- Alva, what do you think? Do you think that anything will change about Boris Johnson's style of of leadership now that Dominic Cummings has gone?
2: Yeah. So we've we've had lots of questions for the suggested you ask us is about Dominic Cummings' departure in terms of the policy implications. So what will him being gone do for the government's Brexit agenda? Does it make a Brexit deal more likely? How does it affect the levelling up agenda, the coronavirus strategy, and then just sort of the broader culture wars stuff? And I think the answer is that it's sort of a bit like Stephen already touched on. I think that the difference will be in tone rather than in substance, but the tone is significant in and of itself, I suppose. So so one of the themes of the coverage over the past few days has been painting this as a sort of tension between like the boys and the girls in Downing Street in a quite annoying way. That it's pitching the, the levers, so Lee Kane and Dominic Cummings and their allies against Allegra Stratton, the former head of communications for Rishi Sunak, who's now based in Downing Street and will, in the new year, be fronting the televised press conferences for Boris Johnson and then his fiance, Carrie Simons. It's been sort of p- pitting them against each other. And there's an implied policy split there as well as a tone split there's this kind of suggestion that it'll be sort of more tree hugging and there'll be no more culture wars. And we've seen in in today's papers that certain conservative MPs and also conservative supporting publications like The Sun and The Telegraph are expressing concern that Dominic Cummings leaving means abandoning the leveling up agenda. But I just think that basically those characterizations are wrong in that Firstly, Allegra Stratton and Carrie Simons, I think it's wrong to emphasize the differences in end goals between them and Dominic Cummings when it's actually quite clear that Allegra Stratton, if anything, wants to boost the leveling up agenda and make a better case for it. And, you know, Carrie Simons voted to leave. I think that she gets characterized a little bit or caricatured as some kind of Tory lefty and eco warrior when I don't think that those are her politics at all and that's certainly not what she's pushing Boris Johnson to do so I think that I mean Stephen wrote on on the Brexit one Stephen wrote on that in morning call that I basically Dominic Cummings's departure probably won't make a difference to that but other things could in terms of leveling up I don't think Dominic Cummings was ever the owner of the leveling up agenda. And if you think in practical terms, this is where the tone change does make a difference. Because even if he's been this person the whole time saying that, you know, MPs and journalists needed to, needed to get out of London and go and meet some real people in the real world at Barnard Castle, <laughs> you know, he... Still, you know he has been one of the people making life difficult for newly elected conservative m p s in red wall seats. It's on you know things like his trip to Barnard Castle and breaking the rules like that, going back like, the decisions over free school meals and so on. the general problems with dining streets repeated u-turns and strategic errors, and the way that the dining street operation has tended to ignore MPs and think that they can use detailed polling rather than the the expertise and insight of MPs on the ground has just meant that MPs haven't been listened to or represented and in terms of those MPs being able to deliver on their promises and serve their constituents well he's been a hindrance rather than a help Also, I mean, I think I I would want to know about this in more detail before sort of claiming definitively, but I don't think that he has been personally championing a leveling up agenda. And, you know, I don't think that he has been at the center of those policies in Downing Street. So I think that that's also kind of a misconception. Then I think the broader tone change is just going to mean that there are probably fewer unforced errors if rather than the sort of policy direction, if the organizational structures are improved slightly and the lines of communication between Boris Johnson and his MPs and his even just his cabinet ministers, if they're all improved, I think that that would just like make the machinery of government better oiled and will be running more smoothly. And I think that it would help Downing Street be out in front of problems. So I think that probably basically my answer to your question is that if it goes well for Boris Johnson, it should look like a slicker and more efficient operation and slightly less aggressive in tone and less alienating to people in the party. But I don't think that it will represent any more profound changes. Mm.
0: Yeah, I think I agree with you because I I was reading some of the coverage in the Sunday papers of what had happened and sort of what the implications would be. And it just sort of made me think that Dominic Cummings, you know, all the people reading that coverage, if he read it at all, would be sort of delighted in in the way that it was being depicted. Because the suggestion is that he was sort of at the heart, not only of the tone of Boris Johnson's government so far, but also of the policies as well. And I just think that sort of it just overplays his role, doesn't it? Because ultimately, the Prime Minister chooses his advisers. And we spoke about this a bit last week, but Vote Leave and the sort of style of politics of that campaign, I don't think that that is is something that sort of led Boris Johnson. I think it's in the style of Boris Johnson and politicians and journalists like him himself. You know, it's a Johnsonian creation rather than the other way around. He was the one who sort of wrote these these kind of pieces from Brussels when he was reporting from there that kind of gave the impression of, of truth, perhaps not the the actual truth, that nevertheless spoke to a certain British or English sensibility that he knew that he could exploit, you know, mainly for fun, maybe in, in those days for fun and populist Euroscepticism came second. And I do think that kind of politics that has disdain for the facts but sees itself as understanding what this sort of underlying innate prejudices and motivators of of the British public is is very much something that's in in the Johnsonian model of politics. And so I think that Vote Leave operation, although it did politics in a much more confrontational, macho way than perhaps you would associate with Boris Johnson, who, who... wants everyone to like him ultimately and, and, and likes to speak in the language of unity. I still think that he chose those advisors for a reason. That's that's how he approaches doing politics. He's always had disdain for sort of the, the dry facts and the process that sort of make up actual policy making and, and he's never been particularly um chummy towards tory mps or or put the time in to try and woo the backbenchers even when he was a backbencher himself. So I do think that there is an inflation of Dominic Cummings's role in some of the coverage even if, you know, it has been highlighted how little he actually managed to achieve of his aims during his time in Downing Street. And of course, it is very damning that this person who's supposed to understand the sort of the very nature of of how the British public thinks can't even navigate office politics, you do think that there's more to it than just Dominic Cummings being at the centre of it all and some kind of puppet master. He, he is just sort of like a less emotionally intelligent version of of the style of of leadership that we should expect from Boris Johnson to continue.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I would agree with all of that to a point, right, in then why have the Conservative Party started talking more about Leveling are like post-industrial towns or whatever language you want to use. Well it's because bluntly the majority that sustained David Cameron, and you can actually, if you think about this in terms of constituencies, Battersea, it's Labour held. Richmond, it's Liberal Democrat held. Putney, it's Labour held. Wimbledon only like a clown car of bad tactical voting anxiety Mm -hmm. about Jeremy Corbyn means Mm -hmm. that it's Conservative held. Ditto like Chipping Barnett in Finchley, right, where it's just like, oh well, it's fine. So your electoral plan to hold on to the bedrock of the Cameron majority is the Labour leader continues to completely fail to tackle anti-Semitism in 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 the Labour Party and to like be unable to recognise at best an anti-Semitic mural when he sees it. That doesn't seem like an enduring path to a majority. If you ask me. Right. So the kind of the the essay question and conservatives have been struggling with since the 2016 referendum is the majority didn't sustain whatever you want to call Cameronism, whether you want to call it neoliberalism or modern Thatcherism or kind of economic and social liberalism. The majority for that does not run through Brexiteers. Right. You cannot be a pro Brexit government and get those people to vote for you in sufficient numbers. And it's not just about the seats where those people cluster together effectively enough to like elect a liberal democrat it's in those places where you know enough of them third partying to the liberal democrat means then that... because this thing is people kind of often think of electoral coalitions in terms of the seats which most embody them but there's like there's a richmond way to win Elmer and rothwell right yeah it's kind of in many ways it used to be a classical marginal now has like a conservative majority the size of a mountain, right? But, like, there are multiple ways you can win Elmer and Rothwell, right? But broadly, if if you can't win, like, all of the nice big houses where, like, they loved David Cameron, but they've got an EU sticker and they went down to the bollocks to Brexit march, right, where are you going to get more votes? And the answer the Conservative Party has gravitated to since 2016 is, oh, well, we'll get, like, socially authoritarian, pro-Leave, kind of economically quite centre-leftish group of people to vote for us instead. And like the electoral dynamic of that hasn't really changed. Where I think there is quite a looming important fissure between the two approaches, yeah, you know, the kind of the battle in Downing Street, is not so much about what the government has done, what about it might do next. Because I think like the difficult truth than I think smart conservatives have started to reckon with and many more are kind of coming so um Jonathan Gillis is the new MP for uh, I always get my Stoke constituencies confused um I want to say Stoke on Trent North and I'm just going to very confidently say that and hope that I'm right and after the podcast is recorded I will check and I will either punch the air or cry a little bit but yeah he's done a, a piece today for Onward the conservative think tank founded by former Mayites and in many ways like the place which is doing the most sort of heavy lifting about like well what would any of this stuff actually mean and his proposal which is a proposal that kind of kicked around like wonk world of you know all parties for, for a long time which is you just get rid of the long summer holiday because it's a period when there's a massive fallback in terms of yeah the, the kind of mm. gap between the richest and the poorest increases during it it's very costly for families you have problems of holiday hunger mm. yada yada there are a large number of reasons you would do it but it's not cheap not least because you would have to retrofit basically every school building to be able to operate properly in August. There are just a bunch of things you would have to do as, as knock-on effects. Now, I think it's worth doing and I think it's a good thing, but there was no prospect of doing it when Downing Street had like this man, effectively at its head, who had made a living out of being deeply unpleasant to Conservative MPs. They weren't going to vote for something radical with Dom Cummings involved in the setup, just wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is if you want to do that, Particularly if you've you know if you've used the government's borrowing capacities as you should to weather a crisis, and you want to, as Richard Sunak does, and as basically every economist in the Conservative Party wants to, to either actively start paying the debt down, or at the very least to stop adding to it, as they were doing yeah, you know, before the crisis, right before the coronavirus crisis, we had had successive budgets. That relied on borrowing to finance day to day spending. Now, yeah, they had this like, oh, well, we've got this magical wriggle room we've invented for ourselves. But, you know, bluntly, the fact that after 2017, the Conservative Party just stopped wanting to have difficult conversations with the electorate about tax and spend means that if you want to even spend the amount of money that the Conservatives were spending, before, let alone actually like do any of the yeah. So Rachel Wolfe yeah, obviously a you know big kind of intellectual influence on this this new strain of conservatism. Going, oh, you know, we would have more police on the beat. Part of the way you regenerate towns is by boosting the economies of of their nearby cities. You know, you spend more on on schools, skills training, and it's just like so. Congratulations, you've invented new labour, but you've invented new labour while also wanting to have like an ambitious plan program of reducing the debt. And the question therefore becomes, well, look, if you're not actually gonna pay for any of this stuff, and you're therefore not actually going to do any of this stuff, what's your failure state? Is it you just go around the country going traitors, traitors, and hoping that you can find a sufficiently high salience cultural issue that allows you to hold the coalition together? Or is it that you try and like pivot back to, I hear social liberalism is great this time of year, and you try to <laughs> recreate the David Cameron majority? So I guess where I think it is different is because seeing as the thing, the other thing that unites everyone involved in this Downing Street fight, as well as the fact that they're all leavers, is that there is not an economic policy brain between them. There is literally no one in there who is going to, who, who goes, but guys, what is our actual policy position about this debt? I just think then the reason why it mm-hmm. matters is that we've shifted away from a bunch of people whose comfort zone, when they don't level up, would have been to go around the country talking about traitors and culture wars, to people whose comfort zone is going to be something that sounds more conciliatory. Now, the question is, Is does the comfort zone of sounding more conciliatory also mean that the Conservative Party returns to its sort of intellectual comfort zone, the place where most of its MPs still are, where the majority of its seats, because this is the other problem with going, oh, well, we'll just govern like new Labour. Of the one hundred and seventy-five seats, the one hundred and seventy-five seats to have neither voted Labour in nineteen ninety-seven, or to have not and to not to have voted for it since, are all Conservative held. Because a bunch of them were Lib Dem seats they now hold, a bunch of them seats they held at the time. But like broadly, half of their electoral coalition did not like that agenda last time and continued to reject it, even when like Tony Blair was so popular that you know he had an approval rating of eighty percent of the vote. And I think that's what makes it more likely that this government will be a lot more right-wing in an economic perspective. Not so much because that's where any of the people in the building's politics really are, but because that's where the kind of strategic drift ends them up. Does that make any sense?
0: Yeah, that makes sense. That's really interesting. That's the second path to sort of keeping hold of your majority. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think, and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12.
1: Plushcare.com/slash/weight-loss.
0: And now it's time for a section we like to call "You Ask Us." So the question today is. In the immediate aftermath of the 2019 election, Stephen wrote more than once that the Tory majority was so thumping that it was already difficult to envision a Labour win, even in the next election cycle. Do you believe that this is still fundamentally the case or do the events of 2020 mean that Labour is more in the game than they would have been otherwise? So Stephen, do you want to try answering this first, given it is off the back of what you've written previously?
1: Yeah, so one of the things I kind of started doing semi by accident because when, it, when I did it in 2015, I just thought it was interesting. And then of course, Corbyn was elected and did much better than many people expected. And suddenly the 2015 like, well, look, here's what the electoral background looks like became contested. This is what I love about covering the Labour Party, you, you never know which facts <laughs> will suddenly become controversial. And then obviously, after 2017, I wrote, look, the baseline was that it was not difficult for Labour to win the 2019 election, just in terms of what they needed to to achieve. Now I think in terms of like the Brexit mechanics of the 2017 to 19 parliament I think holding together that coalition was always going to be very difficult but in terms of the bare minimum of what they needed to do it was quite low and broadly after the 2020 election historically just as after the 2005 election David Cameron needed and you know was not able to get a big enough swing to form a majority just because of the scale of the hole he inherited yeah and and that yeah that still hasn't changed right that is a that is a structural not an event based constraint and yeah that hasn't changed in my view it still remains like the kind of like good result right like the result of which you could say that Keir starmer had outpaced expectations for me at least would be like the conservative government conservative seat number starting in a 2 but you would kind of be like yeah he's done all right i guess if it was anything from like 300 to like 340 and that hasn't changed i would say the the other thing i will say is i still don't think that the coronavirus will be that big of an electoral factor at the next election It will matter at the margin because it's like the way that both Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak have introduced themselves to the public and all of the evidence we have is not they've both done a very good job of that. But equally, the ways they've done that both do place strategic limitations on their flexibility and how they're seen and and, a bunch of other stuff. But yeah, so, so I don't think that has really changed at all. It's still more likely than not than at the end of all of this, Keir Starmer is like the guy who... The next Labour Prime Minister says, and of course, we wouldn't be here without Keir Starmer. And then he stands up and everyone's like, oh, that's nice. They're clapping Keir Starmer. Is still broadly the most likely outcome.
2: Alva, what do you think? Yeah, I think it kind of just can't be emphasised enough what a mountain Labour would have ahead of it to win a majority at the last election. I think that the sort of public consensus on this thing changes in between elections because For a few months leading up to a general election, we spend so much time looking at like the actual makeup of seats and the kinds of people who need to be won over. But then in between elections, political coverage kind of shifts back to slightly disregarding the fundamental lay of the land. And so I think that is partly where this shift comes from that people now think that Keir Starmer might be in with more of a chance of winning a majority at the next election than we did when Boris Johnson first won the election. I think it's I mean it's also off the back of a of a great general election win. I think it's hard to pe- for people to conceive of the victor then faltering in the months that follow, but I think it is also just the way we change our thinking about politics in between elections, but just like to really hammer it home. They would need a historic swing of over 10% to just gain one seat, like to gain a majority of one. You know, they'd have to increase the number of their MPs by over 60%, which no party has ever done. I think that that swing in terms of the actual seats that you would be needing to win over, that'll be up to and including Jacob Rees-Mogg's seat, unless it runs through Scotland which is not looking super likely given Nicholas Sturgeon's approval rating. So I think that it's just like Stephen was saying, Keir Starmer could do very well at the next election, but it still means that Labour would be unlikely to win outright. But I also just think that we are very early in this parliamentary term. And I think that the the terms on which the political debate is happening at the moment are just not the terms on which we're going to be thinking about it in a few months time or in a couple of years partly you know because we should have a vaccine and the initial handling of things will become a sort of a distant memory and I think another thing worth bearing in mind is there's a really good book called thinking fast and slow by Daniel Kahneman who has a Nobel prize in economics for his work on sort of behavioral psychology. One of the many, many just interesting nuggets in that book that's always stuck with me is that he argues that your memory of a particular event or period is basically the average between the highlight and how it ended. That's, I think, a useful way of thinking about the way people vote in elections, that really people will disproportionately think about and remember the end of this parliamentary term and so what we're living through at the moment isn't really the the basis on which Boris Johnson is is going to be judged. I think it's hard to imagine right now but I think and it will be annoying to people who feel very strongly about this that all of the U-turns and governmental disasters that we've seen over the past few months might not be a, a big factor at the next election but I kind of don't think that they will be. Hmm.
0: I think I agree with what both of you have said, but I would add something that I've been thinking about, which is that's really interesting that people will focus more on their more recent assessment of the political landscape come the election. And I think, Stephen, you've written before that if and after there's a successful vaccine programme that means that we can return to normal life, then there will be a bounce in approval ratings for the government which I'm you know I'm sure I'm sure that will be true I can imagine that happening and people perhaps forget about the most painful parts of living in lockdown and and the effects of the pandemic but there will be economic impacts on people's day-to-day lives that will continue until the next election even if the economy recovers faster than some of the gloomy predictions particularly if the vaccine is rolled out successfully some people's lives have already been changed you know beyond recognition and it's going to take longer than a few years to change that and reverse that and it's also going to take a government taking sort of council and public health and public service funding more seriously than it does currently to change that as well. So what I think is Labour's opportunity and I agree it's a big mountain to climb but this could genuinely be the election where they fight it on issues of inequality and poverty and social justice where it could potentially have more salience than it has done in the previous three elections so i do think that that could be an opportunity and it's interesting that there's a lot of work being done on how to talk about progressive policies that actually chime with the general public which i've spoken about before but you know you can see that that the attitudes for example among conservative voters are shifting towards being more in, more favourable towards the idea of tax rises, so how does a Labour Party speak about tax rises that doesn't alienate people like it did last time round? So that kind of thinking, if they put in the thinking now, it sounds nerdy, but it could help them come up with some election messages come the election that that actually chime with people rather than you know rather than in previous elections where where although sort of there was fatigue with austerity and there was an awareness that there, there's inequality is rising. They don't speak to voters in the way that makes them want to vote for them, because it sounds like the politics of envy or it sounds like punishing people for doing well, for example. And if they do that work now on how you speak to people about these issues, then it could help them in future. That could potentially be an opportunity for Labour to improve its electoral showing next time. But I agree it will be it will be very difficult and it's difficult to predict as well what the issues that people will be voting on will be come the election.
1: I do completely agree, though, because, you know, one of the because I've obviously it's November so I've started to do the very early stage of my um, post mortem of, of, yeah, like the various things I got horrendously wrong in 2020. But the thing is, at the beginning of the year, the central thing was, okay. so we have a situation where the government has basically won a majority going. The bits of the state you like, they'll get more money. Your taxes will not go up. We will continue to target the deficit. Now, in reality, of course, as was obvious, you know, if you if you imagine Rishi next budget, but you just take away the eighteen eighteen billion of, of COVID economics stimulus, which actually was, if you take away fourteen billion, because a, a decent sized chunk of that was was like stuff they were going to do anyway. Then they were trying to find a like smart way of going, no, 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 it's fine. We definitely don't have plans which don't add up. The way they were going to get out of that is by using the states ability to borrow and print money freely in order to avoid the fact that sums didn't add up now of course it may be then the mmt argument is correct and you can do that indefinitely but of course rishi sunak doesn't think that the conservative government doesn't think that so the kind of the reckoning with the fact that their promises don't add up has been brought forward by the crisis which I think does, like, change the nature of what's happened. And I think, you know, so to take, like, the last three elections, right, after 2015, when I did this, like, assessment of of how the parliamentary seats added up, I went, well, look, the Labour Party is going to have to do something quite remarkable in order to get even back into contention. And then it did do something quite remarkable and did get back into contention. And then in 2017, you could look at it and you go, the Labour Party is inches away from being able to form a government. It just needs to kind of like keep it together. And then, it, yeah, it, like it ought to be able to win the next election. And then obviously it couldn't keep it together. And now I think we have a situation where we're like, well, look, something quite big was going to have to happen to shift Labour into office, just as something quite big was going to have to happen in 2005 to shift the Conservatives into office. And something quite big did happen, which shifted the Conservatives into office, not enough to govern alone, but enough to get into office. And arguably, we've we've seen something quite big. I, I still think the thinking fast and incredibly slow analogy in is a great way of looking at it. I, I, but I do think, like, crucially, as you say, Anusha, because yeah, it's a bit like when people are like, oh, when will we stop arguing about, about Brexit? Well, it's like no one, when, like, interest rates are held at a low goes, the Bank of England continued its crisis era measures of, of monetary policy, right? We're just like, oh, yeah, interest rates keep being low. But interest rates being low, of course, does have political implications, and this is the thing: is I think while I think it's unlikely that the word COVID will be used all that much in the next election, and I think it's unlikely that when we look at the British Electoral Survey, we will see it as a particularly large consideration in the minds of voters, it will nonetheless define the election because the choices that the Conservative Party make between then and now have been completely reshaped by the fact that, like, they've used their kind of magic. Oh, we don't want to have a conversation with the electorate about how we fund all of this facility. To fight the pandemic. And now they're going to have to actually have a much more difficult and very different conversation with the electorate than the one they would necessarily have envisaged. That doesn't mean they can't pull off a regeneration, but it does certainly change the nature of the challenge.
0: You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyanne and my colleagues, Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons.